Hi everyone, welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. Today's episode is my first interview, and I couldn't have chosen a better guest. During the interview, we did experience some technical issues, but listen, I didn't edit anything because I wanted to be a witness to my own journey with podcasting, and I'm really proud of this this episode. Miss Tariska Maisant is a dynamic speaker, poet, writer. She actually reads two of her poems during the interview, so get ready for just some amazingness. I can't, there's no other word to describe it, just, just get ready, okay? So, thank you for listening. Hi everyone, so today we have Mrs. Tereska Meishaunt, and she's going to talk to us about her experiences with uh, growing up with parents uh, who struggled with alcoholism and also her experience with uh, domestic violence. So, uh, Tereska, we are so happy to have you today, Um, so grateful to have met you, and uh, just so you guys know, those of you who are listening, Tereska is a single mom. She's a writer, she's a poet, and she's an activist, uh, a very prolific writer at that. So uh, I look forward to hearing what she has to say. And uh, Tereska, if you would kind of introduce yourself and, and t- just kind of tell listeners where you're from. Hi, Tasha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm nervous, but it's good to be here. Um, yes, yeah, so I was born in 1976 in South Africa, a little town in South Africa, not far away from Johannesburg. You might know where that is. Um, and 1976 was a, a, a very, it's a very famous year in South African history because that is the year when the kids, school kids, they rose up and protested against the apartheid government en masse. Children as young as 12 years old were dying like flies because they stood up as one and they said, no more. We are having none of that. So I was born exactly a month before all that turmoil started. And that really was the catalyst that topped apartheid over. Right, because it got a lot of attention internationally, and the government started, you know, really things were getting harsher. But anyway, back to my story. So, so yeah, so I grew up in apartheid era. We were segregated. So in South Africa, I am what is referred to as colored. So I'm neither white, but I'm not regarded as black either because. Um, the black people here yeah, speak indigenous African languages, which I don't speak. And many of the black tribes, they have certain customs and things which as a colored person, I do not ascribe to. So, so I grew up in a little colored neighborhood, right? Very much loved, um, very, it, it's township. So township in America is the equivalent of like a ghetto, Right. So it's, it's a settlement where they would throw black people. It's normally in some geographical location that is unfavorable, 
but it's just for us and it would be far away from the white people who lived in beautiful suburbs where there's trees and stuff. But of course, as a child, I didn't know all this was happening, right? Um, and yes, yeah, so in the mornings when you wake up in the township, you go out, you play with your friends. It was like, it's very communal, very communal. I mean, uh, anybody's mother could, could scold you, you know, uh, you're a child, you're basically being raised by the village. But at the age of five, Tasha, I started realizing something was wrong because that was the age I went to school. I, I noticed I, and I thought it must be me. So I would like to start and read this poem because this poem basically describes my childhood home better than I would be able to put it in words. So it's called something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something happens to you when you are woken up by angry voices in the cold silence of night. Something happens to your brittle little body when you know something is about to happen to your mommy in the room next door. Something whispers to you to cover your baby sister's ears so she can sleep soundly and continue her dreams of angels and fairies. Some things break inside of you when you hear the beat, beat, beating of his fists on her fragile flesh. Something tears you apart as you rush to her bedside in the morning. After he has gone, her purple eye from her swollen face, unable to meet your dilated pupils. Something forces you to your knees where you pray and beg and bargain with God for the terror to stop. And it does. But just when you think it was, a, it was but a fleeting nightmare, the walls whisper you to you, telling you, the quiet is too quiet. Shh. Listen. Look. The curtains are neatly hanging and the fence freshly painted. In the garden, children playing, passes by admiring. Oh, the dance of deception. The deception of the dance. The waiting for the terror. The terror is the waiting for something to happen on a day just like today when something explodes in his head and you feel the fear in his footsteps. Something jolts you to the spot, taking you back to the familiarity of the original fear. Oh, then something dies in your spirit, making you bleed even before the bang, 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 banging of a head against the wailing walls. Then something happens. You grow up and you forgive. But when night falls, and all are asleep. You cry for that something that happened to that little girl who is still waiting for something to happen to make her forget. So that 
is the home environment I had, Tasha. My bedroom was next to my parents' bedroom. In the middle of the night, I could hear my mom scream. Those screams, I carried with me up until recently when I started working through it. And this is one of the ways in which I found was therapeutic for me. I had to go for years and years of therapy. But the sad part about it was that as a child, there was nobody I could go to. I couldn't go to, to, to my grandmother. I couldn't go to my aunts. My aunts were all being beaten by the, their spouses. The neighbors down the road, there was domestic violence in most, almost every single house. So as children, we thought it was normal. We used to even discuss it and say, oh, my mom's got a blue eye. And that one says, no, my mom's arm's broken. For us, it was normal. We thought it was normal. It was only in my 20s when I moved away from home that I realized that was very abnormal and that it has affected me deeply. So, yeah, um, I don't know what else you want to know about my childhood. Yeah. It feels like I've already just... said so much. Yeah, I mean, let's just, first of all, the poem, I felt your words in my body. Even even the breaks, the, the, the pauses, I felt it. And, and just notice that as a young child, you were not afforded the ability to just be a child. You had to be the guard. You had to be the protector. Yeah. And so your body was always in a state of, alarm yeah not at peace not at rest even in the silence you 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 were working you were listening noticing something's not right something else is coming yes that hyper vigilance yeah um yes and i've learned from a young age that i had to protect my younger siblings. But the question when I started going for therapy and to get healing, the question was, who was protecting me? I always tell people that um, the first time that um, I saw my father manhandle my mom and grab her from the living room into the bedroom, I, I turned around and my brother who was older than me. He had just disappeared. And I stood in the corridor and I think I wet myself, but I was terrified. And I couldn't understand why nobody was coming to rescue me. And that in that moment, I met my best friend, fear. Fear became my best friend. It, it never left me after that moment because I was always worried about what's going to happen in the next moment. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my father actually was an alcoholic, but he was a functional alcoholic. I'm so proud of my dad. He was a great dad, you know, but he had this disease that 
he was not even aware of that it was a disease. He would go out, work hard. During the week, we hardly ever saw him because he started building a business. The oppression was so bad for him. I remember as a child, him saying to my mom in so much frustration, I don't want to work for a white man. I don't want to work for a white man. You know, so he started his, his a business. It was a convenience store, but it was open to late, especially the beginning stages. So he provided well for us, you know, and I remember he used to come home late at night and then he would have a beer or two and then I would go to bed. And then in the middle of the night, my good providing father had disappeared and there was this monster beating up my mom in the room next door. It really created I, I, I couldn't reconcile it in my mind. Like I couldn't understand these split personalities, you know, which is probably why, of course, as basic psychology would have it, that I started going uh, for abusive men too. So let's pause for a minute and go back before we get into that, because yeah, you talked about growing up and, and, it sounded like, did you ever, because you didn't speak the language or you, or you didn't, your family didn't practice some of the, the cultural practices or norms uh, in your community, did you, were you also dealing with at any point, where do I belong? Who am I? Or, or issues with fitting in? Not at that stage. At that, at that stage, point. I was I was feeling, you know, complete sense of belonging because I was with people who looked like me, who spoke like me. You know, it was all good. It was only in my my teens when I started going to a multiracial school. I started leaving my area and then I was exposed to white people, Italians, Portuguese. I was exposed to, <clears throat> to black people and that Zulus and Tosas and Tuanas, you know, I started hearing different languages. And that's when I realized that I wasn't white and I also wasn't black enough. Oh, then yeah. it was really up in my face. Yes. And then the country changed. Apartheid was ended. And then there was a black government and me thinking, oh, my God, we are in power. And a lot of black people told me very quickly, you are not black. Because what apartheid did, there was this hierarchy. And right at the top were white people. Towards the middle were, were Asians, then Indians, then coloreds, and then black people. So, so they made sure that they pitted our, us against each other. So their main strategy was divide and conquer, you know. And I, this is the time, especially when I moved away from home and I, I moved to Johannesburg because I wanted to be this famous actress. Uh, so I came here and that's when the country had just switched over and there was a lot of hostility from black people towards colored people because we were treated better during apartheid. I can't, I can't blame them, you know, but also segregation, what it does, it really messes with people's minds because it prevented us from knowing each other, from knowing it's each other's cultures and people were just operating on stereotypes. The stereotype in South Africa is that colored people 
a bunch of drunkards. They are lazy. The men are abusive and violent, and the women are loose uh, and violent as well. And we are uneducated. So that is the stereotype that people were operating on. And even up to today, it's much, much better now. But there are still, there's still so much segregation. That's why I prefer to live in Johannesburg. It's very cosmopolitan. I stay in a previously white area. It's very cosmopolitan. So there's a lot of people from other countries. You know, I appreciate that. But the minute I go back home, because my mom still lives in the, in the same township, the minute I go back home, it's like, my God, the segregation is still ridiculous. There are still some white people who have never set foot in a township. There are still some white people who do not interact with black people. There are still some black people who have never sat next to white people. And yes, there's, there's a lot of stuff and it's not being addressed and it's now creating a lot of issues. Our chickens are coming home to roost in South Africa. Oh, I love that. I love it. I love it. Uh, that that whole chickens coming home to roost. Mm. People are slowly being aware, you know, being made to be, being made to be aware. Yeah, that we can no longer stay silent and pretend like we like we you know we don't see the problems. Mm-hmm. We don't see the errors of our own ways. Mm-hmm. We don't see the way our actions have impacted other people. So I feel like I could have you on for for two or three episodes (laughs) just off of just everything you've said. And what I'm hearing is, uh, Tereska, you have you grew up in this in this township and where violence was normalized. Hmm. You didn't have a safe place. And as you even stated, fear was your best friend. Yeah. And then even as you grow up, there's not a great deal of evolvement in the community around you and the community in which you were immersed in and lived in and, and went to school in. There were still people in a in a totally different way that told you who you who you are as a woman, as a black woman, as a woman of color. Yeah. This is this is who you are. You're, well, you're not, you're, you're not black enough, you know, but, but still saying this is where you're at on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. How did that impact how you viewed yourself as, as a woman, as a woman of color and just however you described yourself and felt about yourself? I was confused, Tasha. There was a lot of identity issues. Generally, colored people have identity issues because even the term colored, a lot of us reject that label. A lot of us, because our ancestors were actually called the Khoi or the San, you know, there's also Bushmen. There's there's all these things that different people, these labels that different people have slapped on us. So we are still trying to figure out as a, as a, as a collective, we're still trying to figure out what the hell, what happened? Because the reality is our grandmothers were raped, you know, and then, and we are so mixed. We are so mixed. I have every type of blood in me. I'm pretty sure. 
And yet, because we are a minority, because there was a genocide on my people, because we are a minority, we are being shoved around and we are being told who we are. And on top of that, I'm a woman. I remember growing up, I mean, there were, there were double standards for my brother and I. My brother was not, he didn't have to make his bed in the morning. A simple example. He never had to cook for himself. I, we, we had a domestic help, but if she wasn't around, I would, you know, make myself a sandwich. My brother never had to do that. So the message was loud and clear that he's the king in the house and you are his slave. You are his servant, you know, not in so many words, but it was clear that I don't hold as much value as my brother. So, so even with, with, with boyfriends, I remember a, a first boyfriend of mine whom I was crazy about. He, I found out that he was cheating. And so I dumped him and he was shocked. And he asked me, how dare you dump me? You're not supposed to dump me. You're supposed to stick with me and wait it out until this phase passes. <laughs> I was like, what? What? <laughs> And the surprising thing, Tasha, is that the sad thing is that women believe that. There are so many women I know who are in toxic relationships, who are in abusive relationships, because that's all they know. And the message is loud and clear. Any man is better than having no man. So I've been single for a while now, and I have this personal theory because I've been observing women around me. And the group of women I'm so privileged to be friends with, there's at least three, and they're they're older women, women that are my role models. And I, for years, I watched these women. I was asking myself, why are these women so happy? Why are they so content with themselves? And finally, it dawned on me. These women are not in relationships with men. Isn't that sad? That is so sad to me. That was so sad to me. One of the women I'm referring to, her name is Diana Ferris. Prolific woman. She is the woman. We have an ancestor called Sarah Bartman. Sarah, in the early 1900s, she was taken to Europe and because of her large buttocks and her, what Europeans, because that's the way Africans are shaped, because of her shape, when she died, she was cut up. She was actually used as in like in a circus where people could go and view her. She was put in a cage and she died of loneliness and suffering. When she died, they cut her body up into little pieces. One piece was sent to this museum. The other piece was sent to that museum because they were trying to analyze this funny, grotesque human body. That was in the early 1900s. Diana Ferris, in the year 2000, she wrote a poem about this woman. And she sent it to the embassy in France because they had assembled all my ancestors' parts. The poem moved that governor so much because of that poem that her body, her remains were returned to South Africa finally. That was such a joyous occasion in my country. But 
that woman is one of my role models because not only is she a poet, but it, she, she showed me the power of art, the power of writing, the power of a woman's voice, right? She's one of my role models. She, she's not, she's never been married. She has no interest of getting married, right? She is out there doing things. She's retired now, but she's performing. She's publishing work. And these are the kind of women that I associate myself with. And then when I turn back, my sisters who are in relationships are constantly complaining. I'm like, yeah. So maybe I'm, I've been abused so many times and, you know, I, I, I venture into relationships and it hasn't worked out for me yet, but I'm, I'm willing to try it. It's not like I'm opposed to the idea, but having grown up, in domestic violence has definitely impacted the way I interact and the way I behave with members of the opposite sex. It Well, it makes a lot of sense because even as I was listening to you and you were saying how the women who are single, that they're happy, that they're, they're living their lives. Yeah. It, it just made me think that I can only imagine if I were in that situation and even just thinking about you and and these other women that, that I could see how, how just men, just the, you know, the male gender that they may in some ways represent violence and oppression. And, you know, uh, and, and instability and unfaithfulness and, and, and abuse and trauma. Tasha, at the moment, we are having a femicide in South Africa. Mm-hmm. There's a serious campaign. We even have, at the end of the year, there's 16 days of activism against violence towards women and children. 16 days where we just focus on eradicating that. But the statistics show us that there's, there's even a program called One in Three. Because there's one woman who gets raped every three minutes in South Africa. There's at least one woman, I think, in um, one woman an hour or something like that, that gets killed. And these women are not being raped or killed by strangers. 90% of the time, it's the men in their lives. It's an uncle. It's a friend. It's a family member. It's a spouse. It's a boyfriend. Where I live, there's a park two blocks away from me where a young girl two years ago, her name is Karabo Mukwena. She was burnt alive by her boyfriend. Last year, a girl, young girl who was eight months pregnant, she was hung on a tree by the father of her unborn child. Hung on a tree, broad daylight for everyone to see. That's how bad it is. And I've spoken to to somebody who used to work in the World Health Organization. And she was telling me that there's a direct link, for instance, in countries like South Africa where there was massive oppression. It is normal. There seems to be a correlation between the oppression and that oppression being taken out on the weaker sexes, on the weaker sex women. So men, their frustration. So yeah, it's being taken out on women. So at the moment in South Africa, we're fighting a femicide. It is serious out here. 
and even hearing you, it's a problem just viewing women as the weaker sex. And yeah. and the fact that 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 there are so many men who feel as if they can just do whatever they want. And 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 that that abuse, that level of terroristic activity is normalized. Mm-hmm. That women's bodies not in their homes, not in their families, not in their communities. Women's bodies are not safe. I imagine women's voices are not safe as well. Yep. Yeah. And so, you you know, and just in thinking about reporting rape, reporting domestic violence, I wonder how much is even being reported. Um, I mean, not that you're supposed to have an answer. It's just... (laughs) Just a question. Um, My other question, though, is with everything that you have experienced, and we don't even have time to talk about, I don't know if we'll have time. I really wanted to go back to Sarah Bartman. Um, But with everything that you've experienced and realizing the rates of violence in your community um, and, and the violence that's even happened to you and in your own family, how did that impact your relationships, the way you grew up, the partners that you chose, how did, how did your view of yourself impact your, your choice in relationships or the relationships that you got into? Well, what I've discovered from years and years of being in 12-step programs is that um, I actually am extremely attracted to emotionally unavailable men because it turns out my father was emotionally unavailable. And it might sound like like an innocent little thing, but it's not. It's it's very, it's insidious and it's very dangerous because these emotionally unavailable men, most of the time they are the narcissists. I am quite selective with regards to, I, I, pri- I pride myself on the fact that, or I used to, that I don't go for physically abusive men. So I thought, no, I'm safe. I wasn't aware of emotional abuse. And that is the ways in which I have been abused. Um, And I'm not blaming the men. You know, I'm attracted. I'm sick. Therefore, I am attracted to other sick human beings. And that is one of the things that I'm in therapy for, that I'm in recovery for, you know, to look at the the signs. Um, I have a 19-year-old son, for instance. I met his father uh, when I was 20. 20, I was 20 years old. I was still young and naive, and he was much older than me. Oh my goodness, the ways in the things this human being has done to me. It's just, I, I can't, we don't have enough time to discuss it. But basically, it turns out that he is an extreme narcissist. And narcissists, if you don't give them what they want, they will go all out and destroy you. Even up to today, for instance, I'll give you an example. So he and I have long ago, we've broken up, right? But because we have a child together, he still impacts my life. He will make promises to my son because I don't fall for it anymore. My son, of course, he's gullible. 
he wants his father in his life. He will fall for it. And then his father won't come through. And for instance, tomorrow we need to discuss my son's future because he needs to go to college. And legally, his father's responsible to pay the fees. But his father has been giving us the runaround. And that is one of the ways that I now realize in which men abuse women financially. Oh, my goodness. It is so big because I know when I was older and I asked my mom why she never left because she eventually she had four. There was four of us. My mom said, where was she going to go to? She didn't have a job because she and my father were in the business together. She said, where was I going to go to? Because I wasn't going to leave you guys behind. I didn't have a job, you know. And and I see this happening all over. One of the reasons why women stay in the in, in these relationships is because of finances. So it's it's very sad, but that is the way in which it, it has impacted my life as well. Because I assumed whoever I'm going to have a child with was going to provide, not for me necessarily, but for my child. And for the last 19 years, I've been struggling to get this man to just cough up maintenance. Sometimes I would just let it go, but other times because I wanted a better life for my son. And I'm a freelance writer and it's not always, sometimes it was, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck. And he was out there in the world making that more children, you know? So, so yeah, it's my choice in men. It's really, it's much better now. And I'm much more careful now. Uh, but it was, it could have been a whole lot better if I didn't grow up in a domestic violent home. So, yeah. How did you, as it relates to your ex and for any of the other exes, you're, you're now at a point where you're owning your story. You're getting help. Healing is going to take a lifetime. You know, it's just a process. It's when you think you're better, something, something triggers, it brings you right back to that point. And and, but you're also advocating for others and speaking out for others. What was what was the event or or the mind shift where you said, I have got to get out of this and I have got to get help myself for myself, for my son, for my safety? What was it that 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 made you take that shift? Um, for me, my son's father did something so horrific. I'm unable to share it uh, because it involves somebody close to me and I might break her anonymity. But he did something so traumatic. I thought I was, I literally thought I was going to lose my mind. I couldn't sleep. I was drinking like crazy just to forget the incident. I Yes, I was for a couple of months, I was just a mess. And then finally, finally, I just fell down on my knees. I remember I asked a friend of mine and I just said, just take me to a church. I just need somebody to pray over me and for me. And she took me to a neighborhood uh, church, a Catholic church. But there was a French pastor there because it's a French speaking community. And the pastor prayed over me in in French. I didn't understand a word, but I was sobbing when I was telling him the story and he could see 
that I had been extremely traumatized. And he just laid his hands on me and he started praying in French. I didn't understand a word, but next thing there was this peace that descended on me. And that's when I realized I cannot go back there. This human being is going to destroy me. And my son was already, how old was he? He was, he was two. Yeah. And for his sake, I knew I had to, I had to do something. I gave up drinking. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. I joined, I discovered um, Al-Anon, which is for families of alcoholics. And then I discovered there's a, a, a program for adult children of alcoholics for people who have grown up in alcoholic homes. And I discovered those people, those children are affected in severe ways. And I, I joined them in 2004. And yes, I'm still a member of Al-Anon and AA. And I've just, it's, it's been working. The, the 12 steps has been so painful. It's been extremely, extremely painful, but it was worth it. I am, that is why I'm now able to talk about it without crying or breaking down. And I also, I've learned to make peace. I've learned to forgive my parents. I've learned to accept, you know, because my mom, yeah, my father was the one who was drinking, but my mom was the codependent and the enabler. And I think she got more crazy than my dad. It is still, and plus she was abused. She, my father died um, 12 years ago, but my mom, you can see she's, she's still living the effects of having been with her husband for 30 years who was beating her up and who was drinking. So, so I have, I have a lot of compassion for her. Absolutely. What's your relationship with your mom now? Um, it's not good. Um, it's not good. I was actually thinking that because I've been speaking to other women and something that's come up for me that I realized this is so fascinating because I thought I was the only one having a, a strange relationship with my mom. It turns out there are so many women who have difficult relationships with their mothers. And I was actually telling, because I have a housemate and she's not on speaking terms with her mom. I've actually now recent, it's almost four months now that I've cut my mom out because as much as I love her, as much as I desire to have a relationship with her, I'm not in a space to handle her dysfunction anymore. To, I cannot accommodate her illness anymore because one of the side effects of having grown up in an alcoholic home is codependence. And that is a sick, sick, toxic thing. And especially in black and colored culture, you know, it's, it's enforced on you and people see it as a beautiful thing. You know, if you're the oldest sibling, you have to take care of your young, youngest siblings. Forget about yourself. Your needs are not important. You must provide for your youngest siblings. And that's the manner in which I grew up. So my mom and I's relationship at the moment is non-existent, but I'm still praying. And I, I am just praying for her to, to get some healing. She's had a tough life. I'm proud of her for surviving that household. She did amazing work. She did the best she, she could for us children. But I'm on a journey of recovery and healing, and I need to put myself first now. 
And it sounds like just in listening to you too, I just kept hearing the words, you're saving yourself. Mm. You're saving yourself. Uh. And, and, and there's even parts of your younger child, your younger self, young Tereska. Mm. You're saying, look, baby girl, you're not alone anymore. You don't have to be afraid. Let me save you. Come with me. Mm. We're going to get healed together. Uh. Oh, thank you. Because that was my one part of my disease, trying to save others. Oh, so it means a lot that you say that. Thank you. Yeah, you're saving yourself. And um, so let's pivot. And uh, you talked about poetry. You talked about AA. You talked about Al-Anon. You talked about 12-step for codependence. You talked about God. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. When when we think about like what helped us, what brought us through, was it all of those things, or or would you attribute it to to anything else? What what got you through the hard moments, the difficult moments? And you can even reshare what we already talked about if you if you want. Mostly, um, it it was it was so many things. It was people. Um, you know, it was the 12 step programs definitely, um, because that enabled me to look at myself, you know, and see what I contributed to my issues. Uh, it was definitely God. Uh, today I can say that I have an intimate relationship with God. Uh, even just this morning in preparation for tomorrow's meeting with my son's father, I was like, God, please, you got to help me out here, you know. So, so it, but overall, it's only by the grace of God. I look at my, I have two younger sisters. Sorry, I, I get emotional when I talk about them. I look at my wow. younger sisters. Thank you. And their lives are not good. And they don't even realize it. And I, I could be in their shoes because it's only by the grace of God that I found God, that I found the 12 step programs, that I have found mentors, that I have found books. And that's one of the things that I'm so grateful for. Luckily, as a child, one of the ways in which I escaped the violence in the home was by I discovered books. My cousin once took me to the library. I think I was about seven or eight and I saw this room full of books. I was blown away. Ever since then, my nose was buried in a book and that was my means of escape, which is probably why today I am a writer and a poet. And that's the amazing thing of, of, of how God works. There's a verse in the Bible that says what, what the devil intends for evil. God intends for good. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. And, and, and so, see, so even though my childhood was full of turmoil, God knew what he was doing, you know, because today I'm able to share my stories and give hope to others. And even I, I remember because I write poems, I, I decided a lot of people in my community don't read, first of all. Second of all, they don't, they're not into poetry. They feel it's too high a grade for them. So I wrote a play and uh, it was basically a choreo poem. 
right? I created these characters that I knew my audience members would be able to relate to. We spoke Afrikaans, which is my, my mother tongue. I mixed it with English and Afrikaans. And it was poems, it was dance, it was music. And my shows were sold out. And I remember people coming up to me, and especially women, you know, they were, they were blown away. And all of them kept on saying, you were telling my story. You were showing me what I was going through. And a lot of them didn't even want to talk about the abuse that they were suffering at home, you know. So to get back to me and reading, uh, so, 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 yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm grateful today. I've made peace with my past. It is what it is. Um, and I found a community of people that I can share honestly and openly with. And that, and I think that is what's so important, being able to get rid of the shame because I grew up with a lot of shame. And shame tells you don't speak. Don't tell anyone what you're going through. And in the 12-step programs, you learn to talk about the deepest, darkest things in therapy as well. That's part of recovery. So that's why I write, I recite, because there's a lot of shame that I need to get rid of. And every time I talk about these monsters, it breaks the shame a little by little, and it sets me free. So that's why I'm grateful for spaces like this where I can share honestly and openly. And I'm hoping for whoever's listening, if there isn't something that you are dealing with, you need to speak about it. You need to find somebody that you can tell because that will be the beginning of your healing. Very important. Literally, like my next three questions, you already answered in everything you just said. And... <laughs> You know, you didn't just give listeners one thing to do. You really laid out a map. This is how you care for yourself. This is how you heal. This is how you decrease shame. Silence, it's like a fertilizer for shame. The more you're silent mm -hmm. about everything that happened, it just grows into this huge huge like willow tree or something and so the more yep. you speak about it like you just said it chips it away like the gardener you're just chipping out chipping away at it and you yep. allow yourself to heal but you also teach yourself how much you matter how much you're worthy how much your story matter your experience matters and then you you encourage the next person to share their story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I love everything, everything, everything that you have said. Uh, this is just a question because you, you do have this experience. Sorry, Tasha, before you carry on, I just want to say silence is a fertilizer of shame. You said it, but I'm stealing that line. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> <laughs> I've just written it down and I'm going to claim it. I love it. It's you very should. poetic. It's a yes. beautiful meta metaphor, beautiful work there, Tasha. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. Uh, so for, for any woman that's listening and she, she's, she resides in a home with a narcissist who is emotionally abusive, emotionally ab absent, um, manipulative, controlling, 
if you have one or two pieces of advice for her, what would you say? First of all, um, there was a book I read about a single mom. When I realized my son's father had abandoned us, um, I realized I had become a single mom. I read this book and this woman, she had four kids with this guy. And I think like six years before she left her husband, she started planning. And I realized that's what I needed to do because at the time I was still halfway financially dependent on him, like 50%, right? But I had already made up my mind. I'm leaving. (laughs) I got to go. So, uh, 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 leaving, leaving physically is, is, is sometimes for certain people harder than leaving emotionally. For me, it was the other way around. Um, I did not live with this person, so I had to leave him emotionally. But I was like, he was like my drug, right? Because I was used to abuse. But anyway, so that's one of the things that I started doing. I started planning my exit strategy, right? And I just started, I started envisioning the life that I wanted because I knew I I could see myself becoming my mom. And I, that scared me. That scared me. And then also I started really applying myself at work. You know, um, I never got any formal training in writing, but I started going out there on weekends when other people were out having fun. I was writing, just practicing my skill because I knew that my life and my son's life depended on it. And then once I was out, I started getting help emotionally because the thing with, with it, it's like, you know, the, the, the cooking of the frog, uh, they say that if you place a frog in, if you take a frog and you throw him in a pot full of hot water, the water's already hot, the frog will just jump out. But if you don't boil the water yet, you just place the frog in cold water and you let the pot heat slowly. The frog will not notice that the water is warming up and it will die in that pot, right? So I started reading up on narcissism. Once I discovered this, I was involved with a narcissist. I started educating myself because narcissists especially cannot handle rejection. Up to today, my son's father hates me for leaving him. He won't say it, but he will do anything. He will even use and hurt his own child to get at me because I had the audacity to walk away from him. But those are things and they play these little games. It took me years to leave him, Tasha, because he's adept at playing this little game to keep you trapped. That's why I had to educate myself and get out of there. And then once I was free, I had to start getting healing because like the frog, I didn't realize in what a dangerous, terrible, toxic relationship I had been. It took me years to fully recover from that relationship. So those are the things that, that, that that's coming to mind that I can briefly say, but it was not overnight. It was a process. It was a lot of tears, a lot of failures. Yeah, but... Slowly but surely, I got out of there. I love the, just the methodical way in which you really planned it out. You got your inspiration from this other story, this, you know, and then Mm. you just started just kind of, it starts here. It starts in the mind. Yeah. 
And you just started kind of planning, strategizing. What will mm-hmm. my steps be? What will I need for me and my son? And and also being willing to go without some things. Yeah. Yeah. You, and, yeah. and you knew, you know, what the risk would be in leaving and, and still you did that, but you educated yourself. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's the thing about narcissists is that they <laughs> oftentimes they reside in a role in which they feel like they're smarter, wiser, more, more cunning than <laughs> than anybody else. And so in educating yourself, you could easily predict his next move. And so anyhow, um, but I love that. Now, in terms of writing, what are the poor, the poets that inspire you? Sorry, Tasha, I lost you there. My Wi-Fi was acting up, but I switched to mobile data. It's okay. You would say, yeah. Yeah. So, um, narcissists, you know, they, they, they hope that you don't know as much as them and, you know, and everything. And, and so throughout this, this process, you had all these things that you were doing, one of which writing, you were writing poetry. What are the, or who are the, the poets who inspired you as a child and, and still in some ways inspire you now? You know, I grew up not liking poetry because the, the, the education we had in South Africa, it's called Bantu education. And it's basically, it was just for black people. So we, it was very inferior. We were taught, man, we were taught one plus one. Okay. While white kids were taught, uh, Pythagoras, right? So even the poets, we were force fed with white people white writing, everything was just white, 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 white. So I grew up not even liking poetry until I discovered Maya Angelou's writing. And I was like, oh, my God, I like this, you know. And when I moved to Joburg, I discovered spoken word. And there were all these young women speaking their minds. I think that is what attracted me to poetry, is that you could bear your soul you know, and say what you wanted. I grew up in a house where you're not allowed to say how you feel, what you thought, you know. Uh, nobody wanted to hear that. Uh, a child's role, children should be seen and not heard. That was the message, loud and clear. So some of the poems were Lebu uh, Mashile, uh, Maya Angelou. I love Chik- Nikki Giovanni. I've got a book of hers right here. Um so, yeah, and then I also love Langston Hughes. So most of my work is very, there's a lot of American influence uh, in my work. Um, so, yeah, so these are the women that I just, and some of them I know personally, uh, the, the, the poets in South Africa that I've performed with, you know, so it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, thank you. And I'm just listening to you. I'm like, we have a lot in common. When I, I, I used to read, and write poetry as a child and Dr. Maya Angelou, I, I remember reading Phenomenal Woman as a child. I had no idea what, she, what it even meant, reading it as a, a grown woman, now I get it, but as a young child who had experienced sexual abuse, parental abandonment, you know, all kinds of abuse. And I, re- I was reading this poem and I'm like, hold on, she's got power. She's got agency over her own body. I mean, mm. I just, oh, she's oozing of sexuality and she owns mm. it. Mm. 
Go ahead. The, yeah. That poem, I know off by heart because I say it to myself every morning and it's part of my self-care routine, Tasha. I stand in front of my full care mother once I get out of the shower and I need to put lotion on. And I say that poem to myself every single morning when while I'm touching my body, putting lotion on. And I just feel like this phenomenal a strong, powerful woman that that poem was written by and for. So, so that is for me the the the, the healing power of arts, of music, of of song, and it's basically just starting people just sharing their truth. Oh yes, I've got at at my private practice. I have Nikki Giovanni's album. It's called Love Poems. Mm. And I grew up listening to her. And again, as a child, I couldn't really, I, I, I loved her poetry, but I didn't understand it because I was a child. Mm. But the only thing that stood out to me was this lady is all about black power. Mm. She's all about liberation. And so, you know, in writing my own poetry, which was quite different because I was telling my own story. It was very evident early on, I wanted my own liberation, my own freedom. Mm. As a woman, Mm. as a Black woman, as Mm. a survivor, that stuck out to me that I can be liberated from anything. And that's what she Mm. was talking about. That's what she was writing about. Yep. The Black experience. Uh, so I love that you are, just so you know, you've, you've just earned yourself another sister. So, um, <laughs> so just know that. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so will you be uh, writing a book or coming out with an album yourself at some point? I am about to step into studios uh, to do an EP for my, for my album. Because like I said, the people that the where I come from, they don't read much. So I'm I'm working on my manuscript, my collection of poetry, uh, that hopefully should come out by the middle of the year latest. Uh but with it I wanted the audio as well, which is why I wanted the the, the, the C D or the E P uh to go and just entice people because uh there's still a lot of people in South Africa who feel that poetry is for the elite. So, but if you add some music to it, you know, like you grew up with hearing Nikki Giovanni's voice, that, that is, that is the goal that I want because I'll just do a few poems in audio, but it should draw people to the book, to the written word. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's the project I'm looking at. And I'm also looking at uh, uh, finishing another play. Uh, that I will be, I might bring it to America. Who knows? It's going to be a one woman play and I'll just be talking about, you know, uh, being a modern day South African woman and what's happening in the country and my thoughts and my feelings. And yeah, but there'll be some poetry in there. Yeah. Yeah. You bring it to America. I'm sitting on the front row. Just know that. I'm like, yeah, that's my sister. Oh, I can't you'll, wait you'll to support you. will be in the VIP whether... section. Yes, I can't wait to support the release of your book, your album, everything. Uh, you are such a powerful, purposeful, blessed woman. You've so inspired me uh, today. So I've just got a couple of 
more questions. And these are fun questions, though. Um, okay. When you are listening to music and you need something to get your body moving, to really, you know, to dance. Yeah. What beckons you to dance? What 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 is the artist that that you that you go to? My girl India Ari. Yeah, I'm having a private party. Yeah. <laughs> she's on my playlist twenty four seven. All her albums, all day, every day. Even my son was telling me, "Oh my god, I'm so sick of India." I'm like, "Dude, you gotta be sick of her." I don't yeah. care. She's my girl. So she makes me dance. She's very honest. She's open. She's a poet, which is what I yeah. love. Yeah. Mm. I have gone to see her in concert four times. (gasps) Oh, my word. I hate (laughs) you right now. I'm so jealous. Love India Ari. She's the reason I became, I went natural. I listened to her music. I watched her videos. I would go to her concerts and take a journal and like write (gasps) things that she was saying, like little quotes. Yeah. And she made me come into the woman that I am today. Yes. And and so, yeah, oh my goodness, you are a kindred spirit. <laughs> so thankful we met. And so what makes you what makes you laugh? What makes you what what gut busting laughter? Who does that for you? Um who or what? Laughter. You know, when I go to my neighborhood back home. It's like everyone is a comedian over there. I promise you, we sit on the porch. We call it a stoop, right? That's the Afrikaans word for a porch. You sit on the stoop and everybody passes by and some people come in and they tell you stories. I can just, yeah. And I must just tell you, my gift of writing and reading comes from my mom. My mom is a natural storyteller. She, when I go home, that is, yeah, when we were still on speaking terms, I spend the first two days just in the kitchen while she's busy feeding me and telling me stories. I, you know, a simple thing like she went to the shop, she came back. My mom will dramatize it. She will add spices and put some cherries on top. I will be in stitches. She is the funniest person I know. And a lot of my work is influenced by her. You'll see her in almost all my poems. Yeah. Awesome. So that was my next question. I wanted to know who inspires you. She does. And also family, family. A lot of my poems, I've got a poem for my dad, my grandmother. It's just, yeah, I don't need to go far for inspiration. It's right around me. Yeah. Awesome. So this has been, this is my first podcast interview a thousand times better than I could have ever imagined. I knew it was going to be amazing, but you've just blown me away. And I know you're going to blow listeners away. Um, If other people, if listeners want to connect with you, follow you, uh, how can they, how can they do that? So I am, I'm not big on social media, but I am on Facebook and that is Tereska Mason. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Tereska Renee. Renee is my second name. So, so yeah, that's how people, you can also just Google me and you will find me. Um, so yeah. 
Sounds mm-hmm. good. And I will be putting uh, Tereska's information in the show notes for anybody that wants to look her up on Facebook uh, so they can know about your book, your album, or anything else that you're working on. Um, and so any any last thoughts, anything else? Tasha, I just want to say thank you. This is also my very first podcast. So, wow. Oh, my goodness. I still can't believe it. Uh, and I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you to listeners. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share my truth. It is scary always. But like I said, uh, shame, I cannot allow it to hold me back. And then I would like to end off with a poem. If you don't mind. And this is a poem. We were talking about identity earlier. So this is a conversation I had with God asking him who I am. And this is what God said about me. And I know if he says this about me, he says this about you as well. So the poem is entitled, Who Am I? Who am I? I am a creature of the jungle, an animal. Beast, I feast upon my prey to ensure my own survival and the survival of my dreams. I am a hunter, a scavenger, relentless in my search to feed my hungry heart. Who am I? I am a being known as human, born from flesh and blood, perfect in my imperfections, flawless because of my flaws. Who am I? I am woman, giver of life, bearer of fruit. Woman, also known as mother, daughter, sister, wife, lover, and friend. Woman, also known as princess, queen, empress, goddess. Being woman makes me a nurturer, protector, a comforter, a peacemaker, a truth seeker. Being woman makes me a warrior. I war against the injustices wrought by man. I fight for the innocent ones. I fight for the silent ones. It's a silent revolution. Who am I? I am African. I am African, not because I was born in Africa, but because Africa She's born within me. I am the dark child, rich with cultures and colors and exuberant textures and tongues. I am the mother of the nation who carries the hurt of my ancestors. Yet look ahead towards the jubilation that emancipation will bring to my children. Who am I? I am a child of the sun, moon, and a million stars. I am a daughter of the wind. I fly amongst the eagles soaring high above the gentle clouds. I am a sister to the earth. My vitality I absorb from the fertile soil that my soul tread upon. Who am I? I am fire. I am the fierce fire that burns brightly within my nakedness. I am magic, enthralled by the glow that this fire spreads throughout my soul. I am the light that cannot be put out. What am I? I am peace. A peace so powerful it rumbles like a thunderstorm and summons me to the most profound stillness older than time itself. This stillness humbles me 
protects me and guides me on my path to enlightenment. I am rejuvenated by the raw power of this peace. Who am I? I am me. I am you. I am it. I am everyone and everything. I am the sweet and the salt. I am the air and the breath. I am the light and the darkness. One last time. Who am I? I am love. I am that which we are born from, that which we search for, kill for, die for. I am love. I am that which you cannot touch, cannot buy, and cannot steal. I am the love that warms the earth and which radiates in all directions. I demand respect for without me, you will wane, wither and die. I order you to wake up and pay attention. I am love. I am that which should not be ignored nor abused for I am pure. I am honest. I am sacred. I am gentle. I am eternal. Now, who are you? Wow! I am blown (laughs) away! (laughs) Yes! Uh, So that was that was perfect. Uh, And we will be back with last thoughts in uh, just a moment. Okay. Thank you so much, Tereska. It's been a pleasure having you. you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me for today's podcast. And please make sure that you visit me at TashaHunterAuthor.com or you can find me always at Instagram at TashaHunterLCSW. While you are at it, please, if you found value in this show, I would appreciate a rating or a review. Uh, Also share this podcast with others and I will see you all next.